would like to welcome up my friend, Chris, to give us our message this morning. Good morning, and uh, thank you, Kids City team. I, uh, I don't have a ton of, actually I have zero experience in kids ministry, and so um, it was really important because she doesn't get a whole lot of leadership from me. Um, it was really important that a great team and systems were formed, and that has absolutely happened. Like, if you have kids, I feel very good about the experience, both safe, fun, and educational, that they're having just a few steps away in there. And also, um, I think it was genuine, but what a low-key brag by Megan to, like, not have the verse, but then, like, also have it memorized. <laughs> So you're, you're led by someone that's very biblical. Um, I want to start, so sometimes, and you probably picked this up, sometimes like truth or like a statement can be misleading. Uh, a statement I could make is that I have been to Palma de Mallorca. I have a picture of it. I've been to Palma de Mallorca for uh, a little day trip. That's the statement. <clears throat> the, the story is Catherine and I, between leaving Las Vegas and moving to Cincinnati, we had a few... Uh, months that we didn't need to be here and so we decided to live in Barcelona and just for like a few months I was finishing seminary she was working remotely almost every week uh, budget airlines were our friends we were going somewhere and so um, we flew on airlines called wow and whamos (laughs) it's a testament that we're still alive God is really good but we were flying on budget airlines like everywhere through Europe um, just to go to different places. We flew someplace and then came home to Barcelona and I left my um, iPad in the seat back. And we didn't know it until I got back to our like, tiny little apartment. And then we called Iberia Air, uh, lost and found in Barcelona. They said, uh, we're sorry, that plane's already left, it's gone to Mallorca. And I was like, okay, and so I called Mallorca, uh, Iberia lost and found. And a lady answered, And she wasn't particularly in a good mood, it didn't seem like. And I was like, hey, I'm so sorry, I left my iPad, like, do you have it? And she said, yes, I have the iPad. And I was like, oh, great. Can you just leave it on the plane? Because I I looked up the routes and the plane was coming back from Mallorca to Barcelona the next day. I was like, can you just leave it there? And she said, I will not do that. (laughs) Um, And I was like, okay. (laughs) And, uh, I was like, it would really be way easier for all of us if you did, like, um, if you just left it there. I can get through the airport. She said, I will not help you that way. And that was reasonable because uh, commercial airlines are not my personal freight liner. So I was like, that's fine. Uh, I said, okay, well, then can you just mail it to this address in Barcelona? Uh, I'll pay you for the postage. I'll pay you because I know this is going to be extra work for you. She said, I will not do that either. (laughs) And uh, I was like, well, like, you're a lost and found, like, I, I need to get my iPad back. And she, I was like, these are my only two options. She said, no, you can come to Mallorca and get your iPad, or you can have your friends in Mallorca pick it up for you. And I didn't say this, but I'm like, do I sound like somebody that has friends in Mallorca? Like, I'm clearly not from here. Like, I don't have friends in Mallorca. And, um, and I was like, look, I, I need other options. She said, I have helped you more than enough. Incredibly rude. I've helped you more than enough by taking this phone call. Goodbye. And she hangs up on me. This is lost and found. This is is her job. Uh, And I'm not bitter, I promise, from it. And uh, so we like scour online, Iberia Air policies. They're not incredibly friendly in general. 
In 10 days, it said it would go to the headquarters in Madrid, but really when you read into it, it's like basically it disappears. So uh, the clock started. We have 10 days to figure out how to get my iPad out of Mallorca. And at the time, I'm like, it's a, I don't know, a $200 iPad. It's not worth a $150 flight. And we look up online, and there's a $15 round-trip flight from Barcelona to Mallorca. I land at 9 a.m., I come back at 1.30, and so eight days later, I'm on a flight. It's my whole plan that day. And we thought, you know, this is a blessing because um, we're three months into this. 200, 300 square foot apartment, and yet we've been married for a few years, but like every day, every hour, we have no other friends. Uh, the friends we've made, we made together. Like we've spent, when I went and got my haircut, that was the only hour that we weren't together, Catherine and I. And so we're like, this could be great. I'm going to have a day trip to Mallorca. You're going to be alone in Barcelona. And so I fly to Mallorca, and I weave my way through like a very confusing small airport and find the lost and found. And I'm like, hi, and I get ignored uh, again. And I'm like, hey, I, I, I left my iPad on a plane, and she's like, okay. And I immediately knew this is the same voice. <laughs> so I explained my situation to her, and um, even though I knew she already knew, and she's like, okay, walks to the back, comes back like 20 seconds later with uh, a list, just a long list of Spanish words, and points to it and says, no iPad here. And I was like, no, no, there is an iPad here. She said, no iPad here, please leave. And I'm like, woman, I got nowhere else to go. <laughs> I, my only I have no bags, I have no plans. My only plan is to get this iPad back. And I said, actually, that's what I said in my head. What I said out loud is, actually the iPad is here. I'm still very calm, very polite, in my opinion. I said, actually the iPad is here. Uh, my wife, she's tracking it, and she says it's here. Actually, you said it's here, like a few days ago. And she said, no iPad here, please leave. Then she walks away. Uh, same old story. Another woman came up and was like, I'm with another customer, but I'll help you in a second. And, uh, and so she comes up, she starts helping me. The other lady comes from the back, and disrupts what's happening. She tells her to stop helping me. She tells me there's no iPad, and she says, I have to leave. She walks away again. She walks away, and she gets a phone call around the corner of like this relatively small office, and in a, um, a sudden moment of pure, raw athleticism, I leap over the half wall of the Iberia Air um, lost and found onto now private property in Spanish country, uh, Spanish land, and I go to the back. The, the one, other woman sees me do it, says nothing. Like, she doesn't want to be an accomplice, accomplice in this. I go to the back, and for like 90 seconds, I'm going through like earbuds and headphones and uh, laptops. I'm going through all of this. I don't think anything, because all I want is my iPad. I don't want other people's stuff. 90 seconds in, the mean woman comes around. I never got her name. And uh, the mean woman comes around, screams at me, picks up the phone and says, I'm calling the police to have you arrested. Now, I've seen lots of, actually millions, I believe, of action movies, and I start rummaging through all the scenes of prison I remember, and I'm like, Spanish prison isn't as bad as Yemenese prison, but it's also probably not what Martha Stewart had. So in another moment of sheer athleticism, I leap back over the wall, and I stay in there, and she says, you have to leave now or else I'm calling the police. And I was like, I know my iPad is here. I can't go anywhere. Finally, the other woman goes, gets the manifest, says, look, there is a tablet here. And I was like, I bet that's mine. That's my tablet. She goes to the back, pulls out a tablet, which is my iPad, and she hands it to me. And I want to, like, cry. This is a 60-year-old lady, and I'm tempted to kiss her because she has solved my problem. 
And as she hands me the iPad, the mean lady looks at me and says, this is your fault. You left it on the plane. And I'm like, of course this is my fault. Like, it is your job to help people that make mistakes. And then in a moment, and again, I wasn't the pastor of this church, so I'm absolved from anything I say. <laughs> I should have said nothing. I could have said worse. But I looked at her and I said, you're very bad at your job. And I, I was a cutting comment. I'm so sorry. I haven't sinned since then. Um, <laughs> but I said, you're very bad at your job. I left Mallorca. Like, I had no time to even walk outside. I had all these plans of, like, maybe, like, a bus trip. I just go get a $13 meal at Burger King because that was the only thing that was open. It was about the cost of my flight and flew home and got my iPad back. Uh, what's ironic is I meant to bring it and I forgot it at home just to show you. <laughs> and you would think I would never do that again. Catherine finds my iPad in the back of planes now like 25% of the time. It is crazy. Um, all that to say, my opening statement was true. My second story probably gave you the more full picture. And uh, the reason I took a lot of my time to tell you that story is because we know something is true. That stories can like really bring you into something. Stories evoke emotions that facts do not. There were some of you that laughed when, uh, you sinners, that laughed when I said you're bad at your job. That evoked an emotion. You laughed. You felt something. There were some of you that have been remembering times you've been on call waiting for like six, seven, ten hours. There's some of you that felt frustration for me because we know that a story is one of the most powerful tools we have. Saying facts is one thing, but a story can evoke emotion and response in ways that other things just cannot. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you've probably felt this recently. I've talked to people that are older as well. This is potentially the hardest time to follow Jesus in our, in our lifetime. And one of the things that makes it so difficult to follow Jesus is that we've kind of gotten rid of absolute truth. We've said that there is no more like generic accepted truth. So we can't tell people about Jesus, which we believe is true, because there is no truth. And it's been replaced with my truth or your truth. And a few months ago, I taught on this and I kind of broke down how my truth Speak your truth really isn't where we want to go as a culture, but there is one redeeming quality about speak your truth culture. There's one like redeeming thing that we can find out of that is that now your story is more important than ever. And my story is more important than ever because my story is my truth and it must be accepted as truth. It must be accepted by the broader audience. So maybe the gospel isn't true to someone, but my rendition, my experience of the gospel is now absolutely true. And so here, and this is in your notes, this is the first big thing. This is the big idea this morning is that God has given you something to give away. And it's your story. God has given you something to give away. God uh, has given you a story to give away because culture has now flattened the truth hierarchy. Anyone can influence anyone on anything. And in so many ways, that's actually a good thing. And what it's allowed us to do now is say, okay, my truth is true to me. And it's got to be at least accepted by you. And God did this with Abraham. So before we go to Acts, we're in a series right now through the book of Acts. We're going to start in the place that we almost always start, which is Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It's the Abrahamic covenant. So much of the New Testament comes out of these three verses that God tells Abraham. And what he says is, Abraham, I'm going to start a new, I'm going to give you a son. He's going to become a family. It's going to become a nation. 
And then he says in verse 3, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Then in Genesis 18, 18, God's actually speaking with himself, and he says, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. God then says it again to Abraham just to make sure he gets it and to make, his lineage, make sure his lineage gets it after him. Genesis 22, 18, and your offspring, uh, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. The plan has always been to give this story away. God's given you a story, but the plan has always been to give this story away. And God makes it clear to Abraham in hopes that he would make it clear to his descendants, I'm blessing you, but it's only for the purpose of you giving it away to other people. And Jesus understood this, of course. In Luke 4, he's reciting uh, an old messianic prophecy. He's citing uh, Isaiah 61. And in Luke 4, he's talking about how he's the Messiah. And what I always thought is that offended people. And I think it did to some degree. But it's what Jesus said after he was claiming to be the, the Messiah that actually got him in trouble. What he was saying after that is he's starting to recount old, Old Testament stories where God didn't help just Israel, but God helped the Gentiles. So what he says is, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, uh, Israelite widows, but a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. It's a Gentile. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian, Gentile. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They ended up trying to kill him. They didn't try to kill him when he was making claims about being the Messiah. They were confused. They're like, isn't this the carpenter's son? But it was when he said, and the Messiah is come so that we can bless other people. That's what pushed them over the edge. Giving this story away has always been somewhat discomforting or challenging. And giving this story away might discomfort or offend both you and or people that you talk to. And that is not new. That's been around since the time of Jesus. We are not the first generation that it's tough to share our testimony. We're not the first generation that it's tough to talk about the truths of God. We don't corner the market on difficulty of following Jesus. This has been around since Luke 4 when Jesus was sharing the story of God to bless other people. And they said, no, there's no way that that is true. So we're in Acts uh, 21 and 22 today. We left Acts 20 last week. Dwight was talking about um, how Paul left the Ephesian elders. And when he said goodbye, he went to um, Kos, Rhodes, Patara, Syria, Tyre. He's all over the place trying to get to Jerusalem. And Tyre, the, um, the disciples there said, look, you don't want to go to Jerusalem. If you go there, this is going to end your life. And Paul said, I, I do know that. And yet I still must go. He was fixated on the one thing that he felt like he had to do. So Paul gets to Jerusalem. He meets with the uh, Jewish church, the church led by Jesus' half-brother James. And he meets with James. And shortly after he gets there, despite being respectful and trying to obey the Jewish cultural norms and laws, he gets arrested. Actually, he gets mobbed by people. He's right outside the temple, and all the Jewish people hear that Paul's in town, and they think that Paul has blasphemed against God. He's broken Jewish custom. He's been around Gentiles. And so they start to surround him to the point where Roman guards have to break in and actually arrest him because they figure something must be wrong with him. He must have done something wrong. And so now we're in Acts 21. We're going to finish Acts 21 and go into Acts 22. And it says, As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek, he replied, and aren't you the Egyptian 
who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists into the wilderness some time ago? By the way, he wasn't. And so Paul's like, no, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. And, and I was going to skip over this because we have limited time. I've got to get to uh, my main point. But I was reading verse 38, and I was like, that is so strange. Verse 38 is, honestly, I was so tempted to just skip it because it adds nothing to the story. It's actually kind of this weird, confusing interaction that a Roman guard and Paul have. Like, hey, aren't you the guy that started the revolt? And there was uh, a historical Josephus, a historical secular um, person recorded that there was a revolt three years ago led by an Egyptian. So this is real stuff, and Paul gets confused for that guy, and he's not him. And I was going to skip it until I realized, like, why would you include that in a story? And, and personally, if I was going to make up a story, or if I was going to make up a religion, I would make it really nice and palatable and true with no awkwardness. And then I read verse 38, and I'm like, there is no reason to include this unless it actually happened. And there's moments littered all throughout Matthew and Mark and Luke and John's Gospels that are awkward, that are um, not super flattering for the disciples. And when I read verse 38, if I'm thinking about making up a religion or writing a false book or trying to get people to believe in something that's not real, I'm going to make it as beautiful and as perfect as possible. But Luke, that wasn't his job, the writer of Acts. Luke said, I'm going to record everything that happened. And he includes that small, awkward detail that we feel like would probably have add nothing to Scripture, but he recorded it because it's true. When we get home, we don't talk about the way that the barista misspelled our name or the time that we were uh, transferred to the wrong department. Those are just inconsequential details of our life, but they really happen, and we've all experienced them. And so when I read verse 38, I'm like, man, this must really be true. The Bible must really not be anti-history. The Bible certainly is not anti-science. The Bible is real people with real stories that had a real interaction with a dead guy that came back to life. And in order to record the whole thing, you're sometimes going to get some awkward details in there because, guys, it really happened. This story really happened. We're not reading a fable or a novel this really happened, and if it really happened, we're going to get some weird, unique details that I think, most scholars think, point to the truth of this more than anything else. And so we read that, and from this moment on, Paul has a change in career. Before, he's been a missionary, three missionary journeys. They've been difficult, but they've been successful. Now, Paul is a prisoner for basically the rest of his life. Three missionary journeys. Now he's about to go on trial five different times before five different people. This is the rest of his life. He's in prison, and he's writing before he was preaching and traveling. And so Paul changes, and he starts to speak to the crowd. And this is Acts 22. Acts 22, verse 1. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. And when they heard him speak in Aramaic, they became very quiet. And uh, Paul was really smart. This is straight out of Aristotle's playbook where he says, before you give a defense, I want you to say what you're going to do and what you intend to have us believe. And so Paul, well-read in more than just scripture, starts off and says, here's what I plan to do. And if you read the next few verses, he starts to build rapport with the Jews. And what he's saying is, look, I am one of you. I am a Jew. I'm more zealous than any of you have ever been. Yet something has happened to me. And then in verse 6, Paul starts to share his story. 
We're going to read 6 through 16. It says, About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go to Damascus. There you will be told all you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear the words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Paul shared his story. That's basically what the beginning of Acts 22 is, is Paul just shared his testimony. He says, look, here is my truth. Here's what I've experienced. It's hard for me to deny that. And people are actually listening. The Jews are actually listening that maybe it's possible that the Messiah has come to this Jewish man. Paul shared his story. And what we're going to find out is there wasn't immediate fruit. Oftentimes when we share our story, when we talk to people about our experience in faith, there isn't immediate fruit. When I was a freshman in college, I went on spring break um, with a bunch of my friends. There were 10 of us, guys and girls, and, uh, and this was not a mission trip. This is spring break. And uh, we were not looking to glorify God. I cannot, like, highlight that enough. This was, I mean, some Christians, some not Christians, nobody was there because they felt like God was moving in them and we wanted to, you know, witness to people on the beach. We were there for spring break. And we met a guy named, uh, we were 18, we met a high schooler from Indiana also named Chaz. He was 16, and I have no idea where Chaz's parents were, how he was there. Like, he was just there, and he followed us around everywhere. And I think he, like, enjoyed hanging out with older kids or maybe because we had girls with us. I don't know. But Chaz was, like, everywhere we went. It was amazing. He was, like, the 11th member of our spring break crew. And, uh, and I remember, like, the last night, our big friend group got in a fight, and we all, like, dispersed and divided based on who, what team everyone was on and who hated who and who's not going to ride home with whoever for 16 hours. And, uh, and Chaz found his way with me and my friend Mitch. We we're just sitting on the beach, again, not being missionaries. I cannot stress that enough. And we're sitting there, and we're just talking about life. There's a bonfire, um, and I guess we just were talking about life, and I was talking about my story. And um, a year later, spring break ends, relationships are mended, Chaz goes away, he goes back to his hometown, which is Seymour, Indiana, which is where John Mellencamp's from. He was born in a small town, and that's that small town. So Seymour, Indiana, we're back in Bloomington, Indiana. I don't talk to Chaz for a year. I get a text uh, from him a year later. We don't talk. We, like, this is not an ongoing relationship. And I open up my phone, because I think it was like a flip phone still, and it says Chad SB, Chaz SB. I'm like, who is that? And I scroll through the, like, text. I kept hit the button. And um, I'm like, what the heck? Like, this is the guy I met a year ago. And his text to me said, like, hey, I'm going through a hard time. I think you could help. Could we meet up? And so I'm like, I'm still not really in a place to help you. <laughs> I don't know how I gave off that impression a year ago, but I, uh, I said, sure, let's meet up. Uh, Seymour and Bloomington were an hour away from each other. He says, let's meet 
in Columbus, Indiana, at uh, Buffalo Wild Wings, and I was like, okay. And so I drive there, and it takes, I remember this, it takes me 45 minutes to get there, and I'm like, I just got played by a high schooler. Like, this is not halfway. And I'm in college, so like, gas money's a big deal. And so I get to B-dubs, and I'm a little bit upset that I've been played by Chaz, but we get there, and he starts to talk about all the things that are going on in his life. And I forget exactly, something with his parents and something with a sibling, and, um, and we're talking, and he's like, I don't know what was going on in your life. Like, you weren't necessarily in a great spot a year ago, but you, you did say something. You had something. Like, you shared your story about, like, some kind of peace that you had through Jesus. And he said, I just want to know what that is. And I'm like, I, I still don't know what I have to offer you, but what I have, I can give. I said a long time ago, I gave my life to Jesus. And, uh, and I've been uh, ever so inconsistently following him since then. And if you sensed anything from me a year ago, it had to be him. It had to be the Holy Spirit. And I said, luckily, what I do have, I can give to you. And I said, you can give your life to Jesus. You can have him reconcile you back to the Father. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so in Buffalo Wild Wings in Columbus, Indiana, uh, a 19-year-old college student prayed with Chaz, a 17-year-old high schooler, to receive Jesus. And he followed Jesus as far as I've known since then. His life was forever changed. Eternity was forever changed. And I cannot stress the lack of faithfulness that I was involved in. I just shared my story. And a year later, the story was bearing fruit. Because God has given each of us a story. And the point of our story is to share it with other people. Because your truth is true. What you've experienced from God is true. And it's not always true, not every truth, every person's truth is actual truth, but what you've experienced through Jesus is a reality. And God's not just given it to us to keep here, but he's given it to us to share with other people. And you would be shocked, because I am consistently shocked at how faithful he is to use our story. God has given you something to give away. So Paul finishes sharing his story, and he says this. This is the last thing that Jesus said to him before he's interrupted. He said, then the Lord said to me, Paul, go and I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Then this is exactly like Luke 4. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. They raised their voices and shouted, rid him from the earth. He's not fit to live. So the Jews are listening to this and they're like, maybe it is possible that a Messiah came to a Jewish man. That's how it's supposed to happen. It wasn't the issue that God could have been kind the issue they had is that God could have been kind to them. They start to get up in the air. They start to get angry when they see that, oh, God wasn't just kind to you, a Jewish man, Paul. God was intending to be kind to them, the Gentiles, a non-Jewish person. It's almost verbatim what happens when Jesus is recounting what he was called to do. And the issue is often not that God's been kind to us, but God could never be kind to them. Because the Jews knew if God was kind to them, to the Gentiles, then they were not the end of the story. See, this whole story started, it didn't start with them, but they thought it started with them. It started with Abraham and our family and our people and our nation. And the problem is if the story doesn't end there, if it ends out there with the Gentiles, then we were just a means and not an end. I've been thinking a lot about that because I'm a Gentile, so I'm a big fan of this. But where am I not okay being a means and not an end? And where have I put myself into the end of the story? Where have I made myself the main character? And if I could be so bold, where have you made yourself the end and not the means?
And how okay are we following a God where we are not the main story that he's telling? But we're an extra in the back that gets to play a beautiful part of the most wonderful story ever told. And the Jews' issue was it was not that God was kind, but God could never be kind to them. They said, my Messiah, my Messiah would never go to the Gentiles. There's no way my Messiah would ever do that. What would your Messiah never do? What would your Messiah never do? My Messiah would never ask me to hold to those scriptural truths. Or my Messiah would never ask me to stay in that relationship. Or my Messiah would never ask me to break off that relationship. For the longest time, my Messiah never asked me to tithe. It was wonderful. What would your Messiah never ask you to do? What would your Messiah never ask? Where have you uh, crafted your own version? Where have you started to form God into your own image instead of the opposite? And that was the whole issue here. Not that God came, but that God could come and do something that they didn't enjoy. Jesus is not just for them. Sorry, Jesus is not just for you, but he is for them. He is for them. And who are your them? Is it Democrats? Republicans? Vaccinated? Unvaccinated? Young? Old? Gay? Straight? Men? Women? Black? White? God's for them. Jesus is actually for them. Jesus loves them. And Jesus wants to pull us out of the parts of us that are not like him. But Jesus universally is for them. And he calls us into relationship. And he calls us to get rid of the parts that are not like him. But he is actually for them. And I'm asking myself this week, who's my them? I love the Gentiles. I am one. This is great. I probably have other thems. There's other groups of people that probably uh, rub me the wrong way. Who is your them? And a lot of us struggle with who the them could be. But I'd say most of us struggle not with them, but actually with me or you, that God could actually be for you. So let's flip the script a little bit. Not only is he for them, but he's actually for you. And if your sexual history is is less than Christian, he's for you. If you struggle with drug abuse, he's for you. If you have anxiety or depression, he's for you. If you have body image issues, he's for you. If you have difficulty telling the truth all the time, he's still for you. If your marriage is unhealthy or it's ended or it's ending or it doesn't look good, he's for you. If you've been a really poor friend or a roommate, he's for you. If you're unemployed, he's for you. If you're kind of the outcast at school, he's still for you. If you're a disappointment to your family, he's still for you. Because God's not just for them, and some of us struggle that God could be for them, but a lot of us struggle that God could be for you. I probably more struggle that God could be for me. I have great faith for all of you. I struggle to have faith at times for me. And Jesus looks at our weaknesses, or Jesus looks at our disqualifications, and he says, I want that. Like, I actually want that. Not only do I want that, I want you. Like, I I want you. And Jesus looks at us and says, I am after you. And I want to change you into my image. There's parts of you that do need to change. Of course that is true. But he looks at us and he actually wants us. It's the craziest, most scandalous part of the gospel is that Jesus came for us. 
This is a kind of Christian cheesy cliche, but um, God has done something amazing in your life. And the problem with some cheesy Christian cliches is that a lot of them end up being true. But God, like, God has actually done something amazing in your life. And, uh, and I know two things about your testimony. One, it's not over. And two, it has begun. And some of us are probably thinking, my best days with Jesus are probably behind me. I was so fiery in college. Or man, when I first had kids, I was so pursuing Jesus. Or at youth camp when I was in eighth grade. Your best days with Jesus are not behind you. But also, a lot of us are thinking, yeah, I'll have a testimony in a year or three or five. But I know that both your testimony has started and it hasn't ended yet either. And you're somewhere in the beautiful middle that you have a story to share with other people. When God was talking about how we, as collective believers in Christ, how we've overcome Satan, he says this in Revelation 12, 11. He says, they have triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. He said, it's through Jesus' blood, it's primarily, it's actually uh, only through Jesus' blood that you've been reconciled, and it's through your acknowledgement of that that now you have, we have overcome Satan. He says it's by the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony. There is something really, really powerful about your testimony. There is something really, really powerful about the acknowledgement of Jesus before other people. And you often think, because I often think somebody is better suited to share the news, but actually you have your own truth. And your truth is very, very powerful. Your testimony is very, very powerful. So I want to share with you the most true story I know. This is my truth. I uh, grew up in the church, and uh, I, uh, I sometimes feel guilty or, or just feel bad because I don't think my testimony is that powerful. I've uh, slept with one person in my whole life. I never got into the drug scene. I've never gone to jail, but I did narrowly escape Spanish prison. And... Uh, so in a lot of ways, like, I'm just not, I don't have that drastic of a testimony, but man, there was something wicked in my life, is that I, from an early age, knew who Jesus was, and yet I chose willingly to not follow him, not because I didn't believe it, I was so theologically convinced, but I chose to not follow him because he was not as much fun as the other things I was doing. See, there's this adventurous thing inside of me that like needed to do what was the most fun, the most thrilling. Not like hike a mountain adventurous, but like be where the people are, like aerial kind of adventurous. And I just needed to be where like, that was off the cuff, okay? <laughs> I didn't know I had that in me. Gen X or Gen Z has no idea what's going on. Um, what was I saying? I, uh, the, the, the thing inside of me was like, I, I have to be where the most fun thing is happening at all times, and that just never was Jesus. And I remember going to my discipler one day, my mentor, and saying, um, look, Rob, I know that I believe in Jesus. Like, I know quite a lot about him. I know a lot about the Bible. Um, so I'm like good there. Uh, what I struggle with, and maybe you can help me with this, maybe you've heard of this, my issue is I just don't like want to do anything he wants me to. That was my issue. It's like, I don't actually want to do anything. And Rob looked at me and he said, um, well, Chris, I'm not positive you believe in something that you're not willing to change your life for. And then Rob leaves. And I sit there and write food court at Indiana University. And I was like, okay, 
This is the first time I realized I might not be a Christian. I might not be a follower of Jesus. And I said, all right, Lord, I am all in for you. I am all in for you. No matter what it takes, I'm all in. I'll give up all of these things. And I start giving up things for God. And I said, I'm all in for pursuing who you are. And then I said at the very end of my monologue, I said, but God, you better make this fun. <laughs> That's right. I negotiated with the Almighty, and I'm still here. I said, God, you better make this fun. And looking back now, I know he didn't have to, but here's the craziness of God. This is my truth. I can't explain it. I can't theologically make sense of it. It doesn't make sense because he's the God of the universe, and I am just really not. But the next nine months of my life were the most fun I've ever had. It's crazy. It is crazy how much I go to Australia for the summer. I, like, experience on a mission trip, like, suffering for Jesus. I, uh, I get a taste of authentic Christian community. I come back. And I start to pray uh, with a group of friends instead of going to parties. And one time in prayer, my friend who had weeks to live uh, with leukemia, she got healed. And I remember when she called me and said, uh, the doctors said the chemo didn't work, but now uh, four days after we prayed, cancer is completely gone. I've gone from weeks to live to like there's nothing wrong with me. I remember getting that phone call and thinking, this is the most fun I've ever had in my life. This is a blast. And from that moment on, I was hooked. I was hooked to follow Jesus for a lifetime. And I realized that following Jesus is just more fun. Following Jesus is just worth it. And that's my story. That's my truth. You can't tell me it's wrong because I've experienced it and there's something that's happened in my heart from the beginning to now, from before and after that conversation. So we're going to celebrate the God that does give us truth. Not all your truth is true, but your experience with Jesus is true. And he's so amazing to actually give that to us. And so um, we're going to worship. As always, the front's open. Uh, sometimes we need to change our posture uh, in order to symbolize what's going on in our heart. We have the Lord's table at uh, all four corners of the room. It's for anybody that is a follower of Jesus that wants to remember the sacrifice he made. And then also every week we always have people that are on the sides to pray. You don't have to be in a crisis to get prayer. It would be a shame to come in with a burden and leave with the same burden. But we're going to celebrate the God who actually gives us a story and doesn't make it all about him, but lets us participate in his story and tell our version of how he's encountered us.